0: Our scripture reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter two, verses eight through twenty-one. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch of their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, "Fear not, for behold." I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger and suddenly And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Here ends the reading of God's holy word.
1: You may be seated. Invite you to join me in the text that you just heard, Luke chapter 2. And as you may have already observed, this is a simple account in Scripture, not in that the truths it pertains are not profound, they are very profound, but simple in terms of the work before us this morning to uh, deduce its. Meaning and application—it's a plain text, uh, not a lot of cryptic language or things to decipher or weed out. And that's fitting, I think, because of the setting in which we find the key figures in this particular passage and who they are. And so, we will quite simply work through the passage together and and allow it. Uh, to a a high degree, to speak for itself, make a few observations along the way. And so join me again in Luke chapter 2, and let's read, uh, follow along as I read verses 8 to 12. It says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord shone around, or appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. Does the inclusion of the shepherds in the nativity narrative teach us about God's plan of redemption? What might it teach us? That these people, this group specifically, would be included in the narrative recorded for us in God's word. Our God is a God of immense intentionality. He doesn't do things uh, by accident or coincidence, but with intentionality, purposefulness, all that he does and says. And so to include this particular group of people is worth us taking time to consider this morning and what it might teach us about how our God works and how he unfolds his redemption plan. And one of the first observations we can make about this is that God's plan of redemption unfolds in ways that are contrary to expectations, It's true. If we were to put ourselves into this time period, this this part of the biblical timeline, the gospel of Luke, the birth of Jesus, up to this point, then really all anyone has to work with is the Old Testament, right? That's it. Now, they would have been very familiar with it for the most part. And what they would have known is what you and I probably know, if we are students of the Old Testament ourselves, is that there are a lot of repeated themes in the Old Testament. And there's intentionality behind that repetition. One of the repeated themes throughout the Old Testament is God doing things that are contrary to human expectations. If we were to sit around a table and craft out any narrative, any particular story in any way in which the people involved would accomplish their objective almost every time we would come up with something, God would come up with something entirely different. His purposes are greater than ours, his ways and thoughts higher than ours, and he often does things contrary to what we might expect. I have uh, just the enormous honor and privilege of teaching students in Bible classes at Delaware Christian School. And it's such a fulfilling thing to do every day. I wake up excited to get to the classroom, and somewhat disappointed when it's time to go. But fulfilled in knowing that what we do in that 40 minutes or so with the classes that I am able to teach this year, what we do is something very important. We consider the truth of God's Word and what it means for our lives. In one of my classes this year, it's a survey of the Bible in a year. Now we call it a survey for a reason, because if you're going to do the Bible in a year, survey is about as good as it gets. It's a bird's eye view. We're looking at the, the greatest peaks and the lowest of valleys, right? And we're in one of my most favorite parts of Scripture, which is are the historical books of the Old Testament. And what's what I find really unfortunate is the historical books of the Old Testament: First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings. Those those kinds of books, that genre of biblical literature is also one of the most overlooked parts of the Bible. And it is so rich in teaching us about the character of God. One of the things that we find, particularly in those books, is his contrarian way of doing what he wants to do. I'll give you a few examples just to jog your memory. It's it's in these books, you, you include books like Joshua and Judges, in the historical books, we, we meet people like Rahab. Now, if you and I were to talk about how God would deliver victory to his people as they enter the promised land and, and engage in a military campaign, who we would choose to be one of the most critical figures in the uh, one of the earliest victories that Joshua and the people of Israel would experience, we would not have picked a prostitute, a pagan prostitute named Rahab. We wouldn't have. God did. And not only did he choose for her to be the heroine of that story, but he wove her into the lineage of Jesus Christ. And if we were to establish what the line of Christ, the king of kings, would look like, my guess is we would not have chosen to include her in the lineup. But he did. I think of Ruth, a Moabite woman, who, humanly speaking, had no business being part of the narrative of God's word or the line of Christ, and yet she's found in both. And a wonderful example of faithfulness and God's loyalty to his people that is appropriate for men and women alike to follow and exemplify. What about Gideon? Who would have chosen a man when we first meet him whose threshing wheat in a place where he had no business doing so, a winepress. Threshing wheat done in an open-air setting so as to utilize the natural wind to blow away the chaff, the inedible part of the wheat, while the good part falls to the ground and you collect it up. He does it in a winepress, enclosed and somewhat protected from the wind. Why? Because he's fearful of the Midianites, who were the unfriendly neighbors of the Israelites at the time, and they would commonly raid their towns, take their stuff, and assault their people. And so we encounter this man who's living in fear of that very real threat, which is why he's doing what he's doing where he's doing it. And when the angel of the Lord appears to him, the angel of the Lord calls him a mighty man of valor. Something Gideon didn't see in himself, but it was a signal that God was going to do something great. And he would lead this well, initially cowered to do something remarkable, which was deliver victory over the Midianites with nothing but 300 men, torches, and clay pots. And they would win, a host of, they would win over a host of thousands of men. We wouldn't have come up with that, but God did. There's this fascinating story in, in, in the Kings where there's immense hardship that has befallen God's people. They're in the midst of, a, of an imposed famine because they're, uh, they're surrounded by the enemy who's not letting food and supplies in. They're in huge desperation and God causes the enemy to flee miraculously. The people to discover that the enemy had fleed were a group of lepers who had been outcasts because they had leprosy. They find the enemy camp completely forsaken. And not only did the enemy leave, they left all their stuff behind because they were so terrified by what God caused them to hear. And they had a choice to make. They start reveling in it. And enjoying all the goods, and then they sit and think, how is this a good thing for us to do? And so by using lepers, God brings the message of good news, of salvation to the Israelites, and they realize that they have been delivered once again. Only God. And of course, what about David? Who would have picked him? The youngest in his family, much like Gideon. Nothing much to look at at the time. A shepherd. It's so amazing because David's journey, his tremendous human journey, really begins when he simply obeys when his father asks him to deliver some cheese to his brothers who were at war. So out of obedience, David would take some cheese and other things to his brothers to feed them on the front lines. It notices that there's a relatively large fellow who seems to be disrespecting God and no one seems to be doing anything about it. And of course, the large fellow's name is Goliath. And the rest is history. But who would have chosen him? King Saul was certainly befuddled by that. God's plan unfolds in ways that are contrary to our expectations. And can we just praise him for that? Because his ways are so much better than ours. Why do we say that about this text? Because it's in this field, probably not all that silent of a field because we're talking about sheep being present, but perhaps there was a stillness about it outside of the place where Jesus had been born. And it's to that place, to these people, these shepherds, that the message of good news first comes. Why them? Well, God's plan of redemption, secondly, includes those who are socially undesirable, some of whom are the ones that I just, what we just thought about. But in this case, it could very well be the shepherds. Why them? What is it about them? Well, from our understanding, animals that were to be used for the temple sacrifices were often kept in the open, even in winter. Some have speculated that that this must have occurred during a warm time of year because the shepherds were with their sheep outside, but this would not have been uncommon for them to do regardless of the climate. And so that's what they're doing. The presence of shepherds uh, is interesting because they were known as a fairly despised class of people. You might wonder why. Well, their work prevented them from keeping certain aspects of the ceremonial law. And so they were were kept at arm's length often from the community and even regarded as thieves themselves carried a bad reputation. Now, not only are we talking about shepherds in general who might have been a despised class, but now these shepherds are keeping watch over their flock at night when this occurs, the night watch. It's reasonable to speculate this was not like You know, if you were to be uh, given your choice of shift, this would probably not be it. When others are sleeping, you're awake. And nighttime is particularly when during cooler seasons, it would be the coldest. And during any time period would be when you're most prone to being attacked by somebody with nefarious intentions. Looking perhaps to steal from the flock. And so perhaps these are guys who are already in a lower class of society, drew the short straw, and so they're keeping watch over the flock at night. Shepherds were even often considered unreliable and weren't even allowed to give evidence in court because of that reputation. Why them? We probably would not have chosen them to be the first to hear the message of the king's arrival, who would have chosen these men? God did. And then thirdly, God's plan of redemption often features elements bordering on absurdity, as if it weren't absurd enough. They were outside of the city dealing with a despised class of people, but they tell them that they will be able to identify this king because they will find him wrapped in cloth, which is not uncommon, but lying in a manger, which would have been incredibly uncommon. Manger perhaps being some kind of feeding trough, as most of you are familiar. That's where we're going to find the king? We wouldn't have chosen that. No parade, no fanfare. No party at the palace. Just under a roof with some animals in a feeding trough. That's where, That's how you'll know. That's how you'll know you've found him. Absurd. But isn't it wonderful? It's wonderful that we weren't the ones writing the story. I want to pause here for a moment in the narrative and and, and highlight a couple things about... God's plan for Jesus' ministry. And they're all contained in verse 11. Let's reread it. It says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Those three words, Savior, Christ, and Lord, would highlight the three critical aspects of Jesus' earthly ministry. Savior would highlight his mission to deliver, to redeem, To buy back what had been lost. And what had been lost was you and me. Lost to whom? The enemy. Paul says we come into this world, his property, the enemy. And because of that, we come into this world at war with God. Even going so far as to say we are objects of his wrath. And it would be Jesus' mission to redeem us from that, to deliver us from that. It's interesting, right? To deliver us from God's wrath. And when you look at the narrative of Jesus' earthly life in the Gospels, you get the sense he was always on this mission. Every moment. Saturated with intentionality and purposefulness That this is what he came to do. Even at a young age would tell his parents, I am doing my father's business. This is my mission, to save. Christ would highlight his royalty, meaning Messiah, literally anointed one. God's king, the king of kings. Meant to rule and to lead and to execute justice. And then finally, Lord would highlight his authority. Lord was a term commonly used to reference any human in position of authority. But in this case, standard translation would have us read this as Yahweh, the name of God. And he would serve and act and speak with the authority of God, the creator and sustainer of the universe. That he would be in flesh, the one who said, let there be light. He would be our divine messianic ruler, and you'll find him where you least expected to. As we go through, continue through the narrative. We find that God's plan revealed to the shepherds produced three things. Verses 13 to 15 tell us this. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. It's interesting to note here that that what we have first in the shepherds' life or their, their, their conduct is a recognition that this was of the Lord. This was of God. What we've seen is not normal. It's not, it's not within, you know, the human's ability to produce or perform. We have encountered something of the Lord, and there was a recognition of that. It's interesting when we, when we think on this, that the term heavenly host, that word host, is actually a military term, giving the idea that what then came before these men were the armies of heaven. And it would be right for you to envision them in your mind as equipped for battle. Angels are forces to be reckoned with. And that's why almost all the time, an initial response to meeting one was absolute fear. As these men displayed. But it's interesting. The armies of heaven arrive on the doorstep, the field where these men were located, not declaring war, but to announce peace. Who would have written it that way? Even the Jewish people didn't see it coming. You see, already we're getting indication that this this Jesus wouldn't be the conquering king people expected him to be. Not yet. He would be a servant. He would be humble. He would seek to change the heart of a man, not by the sword, but through his love. He would ask for their allegiance by a gift. Not of their own making or because they deserved it, but because he was giving it freely. The text talks about this peace being given to those with whom God is pleased. And we could ask ourselves, what is that peace? It certainly wasn't the Pax Romana which the Roman Empire had promised and thought they had achieved through bloodshed, captivity, enslaving people. But this would be peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. See, this is the remedy to the dilemma that Paul talks about, that we come into this world as his enemies, declaring war against him, and he's provided a way to make peace. And that way is through Jesus Christ. I ask you to consider, has that peace been realized in your life? Are you here in this moment at peace with God? Or is there still conflict? Are you still at war with him? That peace can be received. It is a free gift that's been offered to you. And it's the only way in which we could be a person with whom God is pleased. So the people that God favors are those who have found God's undeserved favor through Christ. They declared glory to God in the highest. Gloria in excelsis Deo. Giving him glory not because he lacks it and therefore needs it, but because he lacks nothing and rightly deserves it. We sing praises to God this morning and every Sunday morning together because he deserves it. Not because he needs a thing from you or from me. We owe it to him because of who he is. And that's what the angels were doing. We get into verse 16 and it reads, and they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. They went with haste. You know, I find it interesting here that there's a willful and urgent search for who had come. I find it interesting because there's a presumption in the angel's language that this is precisely how they would respond. Because they said, you will find him lying in a manger, presuming they would look for him in the first place. But of course they did because they recognized this was of God. And when a person recognizes that this, these words, are God's words, then the sincerity of that belief is demonstrated through action. In a very simple sense, these men are demonstrating to us what you heard in Bart's prayer this morning. They were not just hearers of God's word, they were doers of it. They had to act upon it. They weren't even commanded to go, but they went. And they didn't delay, they went quickly. I wonder, is our, re- is our obedience to hearing God's word in our own life met with such haste and urgency to put it into practice, to see it done? So here this despised class offers us an example. Maybe the most appropriate way to respond to God is of our own will urgently doing what it is we've just heard acting upon it. Spurgeon commented on this, saying, But the angel of the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. May it never be said of any of us, Well, he may be somewhat a Christian, but he's far more clever a money-getting tradesman. I would not have it said, well, he may be a believer in Christ, but he is a good deal more a politician. Perhaps he is a Christian, but he is most at home when he's talking about science, farming, engineering, horses, mining, navigation, or pleasure taking. No, no. We will never know the fullness of the joy that Jesus brings to the soul unless under the power of the Holy Spirit we take the Lord our master to be our all in all and make him the fountain of our delight. He is my Savior, my Christ, and my Lord. Let this be our loudest boast. Then we will know the joy of the angel that the angel's message predicts for people. Is Jesus your Savior, your Christ, and your Lord? Has he redeemed you? Is he your king? And are you living in obedience to his authority in your life? Then and only then will we get a sense of the joy these men experienced and that the angels proclaimed. Thirdly, there was a desire to share the good news with others and to praise God. In verses 17 to 20, it says, and when they saw it, this baby lying in a manger, they made known the saying that they had been told them concerning this child. They were there in the room with Jesus and Mary and Joseph and saying, this is exactly what we were told we would find. Verse 18, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. I'll oh, see, the good news was too good to keep silent. Good news is meant to be shared, and there's no more good news than what we're reading today. The question is, are we sharing it? Are we sharing? It? I say this not to shame anyone. if I were it would be to shame myself, but as a pastor a working with a variety of people, variety of ages, life stages. I, it's occurred to me there's no age limit on a person who, so to speak, keeps their light under a basket. Jesus once talked about a dark room where light was needed. And he said it wouldn't make sense for a person to light a candle and then hide it under a basket. If you're going to light a candle, you, you let it out for all to see so that it gives light to everyone else in the room. Matthew five sixteen. So let your light shine before men that when they see your good works, they'll glorify your Father who is in heaven. Lights are meant to be shown. Good news is meant to be shared. And yet I have often Not seldomly, but often been with people who of their own free will share and lament with me that even in their 40s, 50s, 60s, nearing death, not once shared the good news with a person who needed to hear it. And it is a lament. We should resolve here today that that not be true of us. Good news is meant to be shared. It's meant to be shared as these men shared it. Sharing the good news is a demonstration that our belief is sincere. If we truly believe this is the greatest news of all time and that salvation can be be received and that eternal life can be achieved, well not achieved but also received, Because it's been given freely to us. If we believe that's all to be true, then we would share. It's the best news anyone could hear. And folks, listen, I don't know about you. It doesn't take me very long to kind of tap into the cultural conversation, which I do so rarely these days. Uh, my My wife rejoices over the drastic reduction of news intake in my life. It doesn't take me long to conclude that what the world needs most is this good news. This good news. And we get so caught up in thinking that good news would be if our party wins the next election. Or if our preferred candidate wins wins the next election and becomes president. Folks, that's not good news. That doesn't hold a candle to the good news we're talking about today. Real good news is that our king came and he paid the price for our sin by shedding his blood on the cross and raising again from the dead. That's good news. And so my question is, is that good news what people are hearing? Sometimes I have conversation with people that treat sharing the good news of the gospel as some sort of unique thing that some of us are equipped to do. This is something we're all commanded to do. All of us, this is not for one or 10 of us to do, but every single one of us to share this good news and to do it with joy and to invite people into the peace that exists in our life. And if you believe this this morning, then my question for you is this, what do your attitudes, words, and actions proclaim? Do they proclaim this good news or lesser things? Are we more inclined to complain about the latest thing? Something we don't like? Someone we don't like? Or are we proclaiming the good news of Jesus? The gospel? Because that's what people need to hear. If we got everything we wanted, humanly speaking, to occur in this country... Like politically speaking, the right rules, the right people, the right policies, the right laws, if we got it all, none of that would save a single soul. None of it. Only Jesus does that, which is why his news is good, because it treats the real problem. We ought to be about sharing the good news. Let go of lesser things. Verse 21, our text this morning concludes saying, and at the end of eight days, you see there was a, according to Jewish law, a time period, a woman who had given birth, would need to wait and then then wash and purify herself. And in this case, with a son, We're looking at a period of eight days, and after that was done, she and the father would bring, if it's a firstborn son, bring him to the temple to be circumcised and dedicate him to the Lord. And so what we're seeing in verse 21 is the obedience of Joseph and Mary. They're following that law. It says at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. So they're formally, officially pronouncing his name to be Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb, Jesus You see, that's a name that we've come to rightly cherish and sing, but it was a very familiar name to these people, the Hebrew people. They've heard it before, multiple times. Not the least of which was a man named Joshua. The Hebrew rendering of this same name. It means, the Lord is salvation. But unlike Joshua, the great military leader who led Israel on its conquest of the promised land, and secured the military victories our king would come differently now he'll come as the second joshua eventually but in this moment it's far different it's the humble serving savior jesus this is a just a wonderful opportunity to do what Mary did. Did you notice? She ponders these things in her heart. Because of that phrase, it's a unique phrase. It's only mentioned in in Luke's gospel. And that has led some to speculate that it might be because the good doctor had a chat with Mary sometime and basically said, tell me how this all started. And so she relates to him the things that she had treasured in her heart. And so the good doctor got to sit down and listen to Mary tell him about the great physician. And he wrote it. Isn't it interesting? We may have Mary's words given by Luke. Maybe. We don't know for sure. But we have a moment this morning to do what she did and to ponder these things. And I've given you some possible reflection questions to consider as you go on from here. I do want to give you one encouragement before we close this morning. Many of us have gathered with friends and family recently, and we'll do so again before the holidays are over. And let's be honest here for a moment. Sometimes they're with people we don't see very often, and we're okay with that. But might this be an opportunity to share the good news? what they need to hear we all have family members that need to hear And you might be thinking they've heard it so many times before then say it one more time you might ask well what if i do and i fail then say it one more time because it's good news for some of us we will gather around a table and there might be an empty chair For some, that empty chair represents a person no longer with you. You meet in this text a Savior who understands your loss. He does. And he is as much your Savior and your Redeemer as anyone else's. You might be sitting here thinking that because of your grief or your history or the choices you've made... Maybe even with that person that's no longer around and opportunities to make things right no longer exist, that perhaps you're outside of this wonderful thing called the grace of God here tonight. If the shepherds were part of his plan, you can be also. There's no such thing as a person who's outside of God's grace, which is why even the most vile person we can think of is a person we should be praying for. So we deserve the grace no more than they do because grace is undeserved. Perhaps that empty chair represents a lost relationship. The person's still living, but there's been conflict, and it's still unresolved. Maybe this is an opportunity to make it right. Reconcile that relationship. Extend forgiveness where forgiveness is needed. And not because it's deserved. Our forgiveness was undeserved. And we are supposed to forgive as we've been forgiven. You might think, well, they haven't even asked for for, for my forgiveness or admitted they did anything wrong. Jesus came while we were still sinners and died for us. And so we extend that forgiveness because it gives them a reflection of his character and his goodness. Don't text, don't email, pick up the phone and offer grace and mercy. And as far as it depends upon you, may may you be able to say, when the holidays are over, I did my best to make sure that seat was not empty another year. Let's all be able to say that. This is a truly wonderful season, and it's wonderful because of the good news we've just heard. Let's make sure that we're living as people. That when others see our conduct, what we say, how we live, the choices we make, how we speak, our attitudes. May what they see in us be a reflection of how good this news is. As we close this morning, I want to do things a little bit differently, at least as far as our church is concerned. I want to close with a liturgy, which is going to be a prayer that you and I will do together. It'll be up on the screen for you. You'll know which parts are yours and which parts are mine. This might be a little different for you. Hang in there. I hope this is an encouragement to you. I hope that as you say it with me, it's sincere for you as I believe that it's sincere for me. And so I want to invite you to stand with me, and we will close with this prayer. As we prepare our house for the coming Christmas season, we would also prepare our hearts for the returning Christ. Though there was no room at the inn to receive you upon your first arrival, as we decorate and celebrate, we do so to mark the memory of your redemptive movement into our broken world, O God. Our glittering ornaments and Christmas trees, our festive carols, our sumptuous feasts. Our That God, on a particular night, in a particular place, so many years ago was born to us, an infant king, our prince of peace. Our wreaths and ribbons and colored lights, our giving of gifts, our parties with friends, these have never been ends in themselves. In view of such great tidings of love announced to us and to all people, how can we not be moved to praise and celebration in this Christmas season? As we decorate our street, and as we
0: and and sing together, we are
1: rehearsing our coming joy. We are making ready to receive the one who has already, with open arms, received us. Now we celebrate your first coming, Emmanuel, even as we long for your return. O oh, Prince of Peace, our elder brother, return soon. We miss you so. Amen. May I be the first one to tell you, Merry Christmas.